Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here, and I think Mark's on the other end of the the internets, and um, it is the weekend in June the 1st, 2018. Welcome, everybody, all our new subscribers, and I think, Mark, we had some interesting responses and some um, positive responses to our last um, episodes and our Vet Gurus on the Road podcasting where we did a couple of interviews there at the Australian Veterinary Association conference, Mark, and by the look of it, we still have a couple of interviews to put on our podcast, which includes one we're doing today, which is a cracker, Mark, it's a cracker, um, the one we've got today. So remembering our contact details, vetgurus at gmail.com if anybody wants to contact us, and um, we'd love to hear from you because we get lonely out here in internet land, don't we, Mark, if we don't hear anything? Well, it's been particularly uh, how lonely it is in internet land has been strikingly pointed out to us by how much we enjoyed talking to people at the conference. Um, it was uh, it was really a uh, and the, the AVA conference is always an excellent opportunity to connect to our um, colleagues to attend the UPAV session and talk to people about exotic animals and birds. But just to add to that the chance to talk to our colleagues on with the microphone in front of them and draw them out. It was just excellent, Brendan. It was fun. It was fun. And we even attended a few sessions as well, didn't we, and um, became a bit more educated, um, which wouldn't be hard to do, I don't <laughs> think, somehow. So I think we're going to jump into news, Mark, before we get on to the uh, interview we have recorded from the conference, and I'm going to take the first one, and it is one, well, actually, no, we're not going to jump into news. We have to talk a little bit about what we've been up to, Mark. I know, I was going to ask, we've, we've um, only been back from uh, the conference a little while, but, but we certainly want to know what's happened since you've gotten back, Brendan. Well, I spent this morning doing a few necropsies, so that was my day this morning, and it was a couple of interesting cases. One was a a turtle, an eastern long-necked turtle that was brought in frozen, so I don't think we could help it, but the owner obviously wanted a necropsy, a post-mortem done on this turtle. I didn't see the client when they came in, but apparently it was a an adult female that uh, he was concerned that it may have eaten something untoward. So I spent this morning after thawing it out for a day or so because it's been a tad cold down here in Melbourne, so I left it in the fridge, refrigerator to thaw out, and it took a couple of days to thaw out. So thawed it out overnight again um, out of the fridge and um, got stuck into it with a little saw this morning and had a bit of a poke around inside, and it was interesting. I think there's probably two possibilities with it. It had lots of spots all over and throughout its liver mark, um, so its liver wasn't looking too crash hot, and it was indeed a female because we had what looked like follicular stasis going on there and potentially maybe some ruptured follicles. So my my thoughts were that we either had a septicemic episode with this animal or that we... um, have neoplasia and we have tumours in that liver. Um, I had a good look through the gut and there was no signs of any 
obstruction there. So chopped off a bit of liver and kept that in formalin and we're waiting to hear back from the client whether they want to go ahead with some histo on it. So it didn't eat whatever they thought it had eaten, Mark. So that was number one. Number two was a bit of a depressing one because it was this lovely family that had a ferret that I did surgery on it last week and I was quite happy with the surgery. It was a typical ferret surgery and obstruction uh, and it had eaten it was a bit of a tricky one to diagnose actually with um, what it had eaten. It, it had eaten a foam ear plug, Mark. <laughs> so it was a, quite an interesting one and that had then expanded in the stomach and was sitting in the stomach and it was showing vague signs of not wanting to eat much and, and almost gagging or semi-regurgitating slash vomiting. So managed to finally sort of diagnose it and, and, and or or. Well, I was highly suspicious of the of, of obstruction with the with the plain radiographs and the bloods and clinical examination and the history, but I wasn't a hundred percent. But um, based on the ones I've done before, I did suggest to them we should do an exploratory laparotomy. The alternative was ultrasound. Um, so we jumped in there, and yeah, we found, um, or I found, it had indeed swallowed this um, earplug. Got it out. The surgery went quite well, but it was fairly debilitated by the time we took it into surgery. Uh, it had been several days before it was brought into the clinic, so we were sort of behind the eight ball at the start anyway. Uh, it was on IV fluids, etc., and went home on the um, recovery diets, and it just wasn't quite right. Um, oh, I did, that's right, I did scope it before I jumped in and did the exploratory and we had ulceration of the esophagus and the stomach so I scoped it right down to the stomach and I was there was lots of ulcers along the esophagus and stomach so I was very worried about that we had secondary problems there maybe it had a helicobacter gastritis um, and esophagitis um, so we started treatment for that post-operatively and it never quite came came good and over the next few days it just kept hanging in there and, and the owners elected to euthanize it at the end and did the postmortem yesterday or this morning, sorry. And um, bottom line is I was, the, the surgery went well because there was no signs of any leakage and the surgery site for the gastrotomy looked fantastic, but it was a bit of a mess. That stomach still um, very dilated and um, the lungs looked abnormal as well, so whether or not it had aspirated at some stage. So a bit of a sad one. So that was my opening up dead animals this morning, Mark. That was um, my news. What have you got? Something a bit more cheery, I hope. Well, we do have a bit of a cheery one, Brendan. We um, we uh, have had a very special patient, quite possibly. Well, just let's just say very special. Um, black neck storks, sometimes known as jabiroos, um, they they um they are, have been found as far south as the New South Wales Victorian border, but the most southern. Uh, example of the birds breeding is in a tree at Tomago, which is only a short distance from our hospital. And they had the first recorded, the young pair who own that tree had the first recorded um, uh, nestling last year. Unfortunately, oh. that nestling, now about uh, 12 months old, they actually have another chick at the moment. But that original nestling um, succumbed, as many uh, year-old uh, black-neck storks do, to uh, maladjustment um, and um, was caught by 
um, some members of the Hunter Bird Observers Club and brought to the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital. Um, we've had it on fluids and supplementary feeding, and it's bouncing back to health, thank goodness. Um, so that's been quite a good news story this week for us, to have one of those uh, endangered species and um, the example of its species mm. born most southern, more southern than any other um, young black neck stork um, in our hospital and uh, having us allowing us the opportunity to um, to treat and um, rehabilitate the bird. It's been an awesome experience, Brendan. Ah, that is excellent, yes, and hopefully it will continue to improve and I'll get back out there and I won't have any, any signs of maladaption syndrome well, or anything more. You've, you've already um, highlighted one of the potential problems for us and that is um, uh, that we do worry that um, that this may be part of a natural process, that uh, the birds that can't hunt very well, um, maybe they're not meant to make it. And, um, and so are we doing the right thing in getting it back to the wild? My... my um, argument at the beginning of this process was that um, that uh, that it is an endangered um, species that we um, that we have had unusual weather conditions in the hunter lady lately which make um, birds that feed predominantly on eels 70 percent of mm-hmm. the biomass these predatory birds eat are freshwater eels and um, the uh, dryness lately in the hunter has made that those eels hard to come by so look I think it's been a unique circumstance I think there's a good chance we'll have a bird that gets over this first year hurdle and goes on to be successful but um, we're going to give it our best shot in any case. Good luck to you and yeah you're lucky to be able to see them and, and treat them up close. Yes. Um, speaking of maladaption syndrome, Mark, I mean, I think that's what I certainly have or get when I get back from the conferences. Um, I don't know whether it's lack of sleep or whether it's just um, getting out of the, the groove of, of the day-to-day work, but it's always a little bit tricky getting back to getting back to the flow of things. I don't know whether you have the same, same issue, Mark, um, but, yeah, I think I could be a – a full-time conference junkie if I had the time and the money and um, just travel around to, to conferences and um, have a good chat to people. It's good fun, isn't it? We could do lots of – we could be a permanent vet gurus on the road, couldn't we? I could, we could easily live that lifestyle for yeah. sure. <laughs> it would be good. Um, one day, Mark, one day. Um, okay, so let's jump into the news stories. Enough frivolity. <laughs> and I think I'll take the first one, and that is, um, well, it's a bit of a good one and a bit of a sad one because I've got a backstory to this one, Mark, and that is the call to ban the trade in amphibians from Asia. And it's regarding the, the um, chitrid fungus that we've spoken about before that's um, – um, involved with the decline and extinction of frog species especially but also other amphibians and uh, international researchers have said they've done a bit of a study with the human movement of amphibians and they've worked out that um, these strains and the findings that they found suggested the range of the disease has expanded greatly from um, mainly from global in- expansion and international trade um, and what they are saying is that that research not only points to East Asia as the ground zero for the de- deadly fungal pathogen, but 
we've only got the tip of the iceberg of the diversity of the actual species of chytrid in Asia. So what they want to do is they're suggesting to stop stop people um, transferring these frogs and smuggling these frogs and importing frogs from Asian areas because they think it's human movement has directly contributed to the spread of the pathogen around the world, Mark. So whether that's a practical thing to do, my sceptical mind says no, um, but it's an interesting study. The backstory is probably even more interesting, I think, in the, and it's a bit sad in that um, I think you know the researchers that originally discovered the chytrid fungus and um, the Australian researchers, um, Lee Skerritt. Um, do you know Lee, Mark, or not? No, I have. I've had the pleasure of sitting at conference tables with Lee as well. So, um. yes. So Lee and well, the two Lees that um, there was two Lees a couple of years below me at university uh, at Melbourne, and these were they were called and they were a couple during university at vet school, and they were called He Lee and She Lee because they both had the first name Lee, and um, they both went on to be wildlife veterinarians. And one of them was in um, um, at the forefront of discovering the chytrid disease. Um, and I was just chatting to them via email just um, last week, actually, and. Um, the sad news is that their funding um, for at least one of them has been cut right back, and uh, which is really sad because these are, you know, world-renowned researchers that um, involved with with discovering this disease, and yet um, there's not enough funding to keep them going. So it was, it wasn't good news from them, but um, it just, I don't know, it's it's a sad ending to this story, which probably isn't as. Uh, a fun or, or or an upbeat story anyway, Mark, but it just frustrates me when you have people like this who are absolute guns in their in, in their um in their little area of research and yet um they aren't um they aren't kept on, Mark. So I don't know I don't know what the answer is to that. Um, well I can tell you the answer, Brendan. It's the appropriate amount of money. Um, and <laughs> yeah. given the taxes that we pay, um, I, I I would be like more than happy to pay just slightly more um, if the money was to go to you know world leaders like um, um, the two Lees and and as you say they they've done groundbreaking research both um, on a worldwide basis but particularly so we understand this disease better in Australia and their research has been so practically applicable i know the um the hospital the the frog hospital i think in cairns use their protocols to prevent um transmission of the disease i know that um many of the zoos do as well and so they've they've had a direct impact on the likelihood this disease is going to spread and cause more problems and you would think that if anything that that, that sort of success would justify ongoing funding. But um, in today's climate, um, unless it makes an immediate buck, um, our um, government doesn't see it as something worthwhile, Brendan. Yes, and I don't think it's just our government. I think it's worldwide. It's an issue, isn't it, Mark? Which leads beautifully to our next story, and that is the the critically endangered there needs to be another word apart from critically endangered <laughs> that's, that's even more endangered than critically endangered like this species. And and uh, uh, this story you're going to introduce, and that's the 
the critically endangered smallest pauper species in the world. So do you want to have a little chat about that? I did. I just was going to – we've talked about the Vaquita before. Um, it's a complicated story uh, um, that uh, only discovered um, this uh, um, last century in the 1950s, this world's smallest um, porpoise, only five foot long, um, and lives in the uh, – the, um, uh, Bay of Mexico, is that the, uh, I can't remember the name, the, just at the southern part of California. And um, the, the, the numbers, last time we talked, we were talking about the numbers being somewhere in the vicinity of 30, 30 to 40 uh, individuals. The poor vaquitas are killed by gillnets, but they're bycatch. The gillnets are used in that bay to catch that um Totoaba, um, whose swim bladder is a delicacy in Chinese food and medicine. Um, yes. And um, the vaquitas are uh, drowned in the gillnets. Um, and there, there's some reports now that um, the most recent reports suggest there's only 12 individuals left. So critically endangered doesn't do them justice, Brendan. We're talking about uh, this will be the second time we've mentioned the vaquita and, um, and I think we're literally talking about a species in the process of becoming extinct. So, um, so I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the efforts of various agencies um, in that part of the world can um, see their way clear to um, solving the problem for the vaquita. But, um, geez, I, I, with twelve individuals or less in the wild, um, I, I don't know that. Um, I think that we'll be a few years down the track and and bemoaning the loss of another species. Yes, and it it is almost getting to, it's getting to that stage where 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 you'd think do we do we keep spending time and effort on trying to save them when we only have the twelve or so species left? Um, however sad that is. So yeah, thanks, Mark. Another depressing story from you. <laughs> um, um, although you do have a, a slightly upbeat one to finish on in in a couple of minutes, don't you? Which is good. But yes, um, yeah, they need to throw some money. Is the answer, isn't it, for that one as well? They need to get some money into um, helping helping that out and um, trying to sort out what's happening with that um, that those gill nets and 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 stopping those gill nets. Um, Accidentally catching them, yes. Um, well, I've got a slightly, slightly um, more heartwarming story for Article Number Three, Mark, and that is therapy dogs. And um, I think we both have spoken about therapy animals or animals as therapy before. And this is a new study which examined the stress levels of the dogs um, that were doing therapy, um, which was quite an interesting study, and I thought it was quite a good study as well um, because we. We all know, and there's plenty of research out there about the um, the, the health benefits of therapy dogs or, or, or therapy animals, um, for that matter, um, visiting people in hospitals, etc., and for mentally unwell people. Um, and this article um, talks about the fact that there were over fifty thousand therapy dogs in the United States. That's a lot, isn't it, Mark? I didn't realise I had had that many there. Um, and the research confirms that the benefits of pet therapy is real. But what about the dogs? What about the dogs so what they did is they do a little they did a fairly big study actually um, of several it's a multi-site study mark um, where they did 100 patients and 26 
dogs participated. I wonder if they had to fill out a form or put their hands up or their paws up to say, yes, I wanted to be involved in this study. <laughs> and sure they, they did. Yes, they mes- measured several things, including cortisol levels to see whether that was rising or not. Um, but they also videotaped the dogs and analysed 26 canine behaviours in three categories, friendly actions such, such as a person approaching or playing with the, with the dogs um, or the dog play bowing or moderate stress indicators such as lip licking and shaking or high stress behaviours. And um, they um, found, and the good news is, and they thought it was a well-designed um, study, and they worked out that the summary was it's fair to say that some of the activities are more fun than not and that it looks like most of the dogs enjoyed their work, Mark. Um, and it does go on to say that, um, like all things, you need to select dogs that enjoy this type of work generally which makes sense obviously um but um we need to make sure that the therapy dog trainers and the certifiers as well as the owners um need to be careful with these dogs and looking after the mental health of the dogs mark and not just the people that the dogs are are helping so i thought it was quite an interesting article and we'll link to that in our show notes there but um the answer to the question the answer to the question, do they like their jobs, is is probably a positive, yes. And I, and I, it's, I really enjoy that article's different point of view that, um, that uh, in such an important area where humans are the beneficiaries, to change a perspective is a really sensible thing, I think, to do. But I, I instinctively I would have thought... Um, just having watched some of the dogs that do therapy work, um, that that they the one at least the ones I can immediately recall they do they almost I know this is a bit more anthropomorphic than I usually like to be but I reckon they really enjoy it they really know it's their job and uh, and I, I remember one golden retriever in particular who would just change behavior between people would be raucous and jump on someone who was um who was able to cope with it but was very gentle and and uh respectful for uh, a particularly elderly person who was obviously more delicate and couldn't cope with rambunctious behavior so i, I think it is a yes a, naturally good at but like you said, the, and the study suggested, there's there's a, an aptitude. Some dogs are much better at it than others. Yes, and it's but it is good, isn't it, that researchers are, or, or people are looking at um, the welfare of the animals involved in this as well. So no, I, I thought it was quite a good article, and I think you've got a. A very quirky article for the final news item today. <laughs> it is quirky. And, is quirky. of course, it is a bird article, and a so, one so far away, Mark. Well, I was really attracted to this story because, um, as I was just talking about, so many of the things, so many of the stories I see online, particularly on my Facebook feed, are just like over-the-top anthropomorphizing. They misunderstand an animal's behaviour completely and attribute characteristics or, or uh, intentions to the behaviour that are just that demonstrate they don't understand the animals at all. But in this instance, um, I don't know that that can be said. This is a story about a corvid 
a crow in Japan um, that appeared to make an attempt to purchase a train ticket. Um, so uh, the the um, the story goes that um, while waiting in line, a uh, Twitter user captured a remarkable scene f- uh, uh, with their, their uh, um, cam- phone camera involving a crow in the ticket machine with the prospective passengers unfazed by the large black bird in their midst. The video shows the bird attempting to use the machine. After a couple of seconds of frustration, it makes a connection that people have been inserting something into the machine and a reward of some sort will come out. So the bird then steals the credit card of a woman just to its left and tries to get the reward. Now, I... I don't think the crow's so intelligent that it actually wants to get on the train, but I do think they're observant and intelligent enough to see a bunch of humans queuing up, and um, and I think they're clever enough to uh, to identify that there is a positive that people feel good when they've gotten their ticket. Um, so it's um it's not a big stretch to suggest that the crow's trying to get trying to score some of whatever that is that's so good that so many people are prepared to line up. So crows are regarded as one of Earth's smartest animals and so it's no no big surprise that uh, that they're likely to mimic human behaviour in search of a reward. There's a whole bunch of other stories where they, um, they uh, will learn to make tools, they give treasures to generous young kids who give them presents. They seem to obey signs by observing what uh, people do at those signs. Um, so it, it's no big surprise that they're likely to mimic a human behaviour to to see if they can seek some reward. Yes, they're. Um, I was just actually just found that video and I was just looking at it as you speak. Two point nine three million views, Mark. Um, that um, video has um, and I did mention this video to one of my nurses this morning and she told me a slightly related story and um, I must I must try and chase it up and she said oh did you have you seen or, or the video of the dog or the story about a dog in a park I think she said somewhere in the USA that was observing people at um a little takeaway counter or a little little place that sells coffees or something like that and it would watch watch people go up and give money um to get food um so it then tweaked that maybe if i i could get fed if i gave something that looks like money to to a storeholder and it would go and pick up um, leaves and take it to people in its mouth and give it to the uh, owners of the shop um, and they they then started feeding the dog so it, would, it was trained to then pick up leaves for payment um, to get a little treat so um, it just reminded me of that I thought it was quite funny so some of these animals, oh, oh gee I, I tell you what I wish I could use um, leaves as money Mark, I'd be a lot, <laughs> I'd be a lot happier um, than I would be um, as well, I'd, I'd be um, it'd be the money tree, wouldn't it? <laughs> Have you said that? Yes. So that's our last quirky news story. I think. We need to have a review, and this time, Mark, no excuses. We need a veterinary review of a piece of equipment um, rather than a video. I have sensed <laughs> a certain dissatisfaction with um, with the topics we've um, we've uh, I've decided to review on previous episodes, Brendan. I I I, I um 
I, I take your your tone to imply that we need to return to the things that I might use at work. And um, so I've come up with one of the things that I would, well, pretty much I use every day that I do surgery. Um, it is uh, my wonderful Lone Star Retractor Ring. Um, they're uh, um, an excellent device, a, um, a plastic um, ring that uh, um, it sort of looks like it's uh, it's Meccano or some sort of construction device like that. It comes in several parts, um, and you uh, can sterilise them and uh, and then um, uh, con- construct the the ring while everything's sterile while you're all gloved up, um, and it creates a field around your surgical site, which then you can use to apply um, some. Uh, elasticized retractor hooks um and um and i find these uh, the original design as i understand it was made uh, by a human surgeon in order that they could do uh perineal surgery in humans around the the um uh, around the urethra and um, deeper structures and um and uh, in my hands, they're, they're, they're certainly not limited to, um, to single locations like that. And particularly because I do a bit of bird surgery, um, I find them exceptionally useful for gaining, um, gaining uh, excellent access and views without making necessarily gigantic incisions. The- yes, I'm, I totally agree, Mark, and I use the retractor probably not as often as I should because every time I end up using it, I think, why didn't I use that for the last few surgeries that I used? So it's, it's basically a, a, like having an assistant, an, another pair of hands, isn't it, um, that, that, um, that helps you with the surgery. And, and I think you're correct in that it was originally developed um, in the human field for yeah, urology and, and, and surgery of the nether regions, Mark, um, so to help open up space so they can view things and yeah i love my lone star retractor and um it is a u.s developed product for the veterinary market but it is imported here in australia by our guest speaker um who is one of the in people we interviewed at the australian veterinary association conference mark so it's a perfect segue to our interview which we'll cross to in a moment and that is with doug black and doug black is the owner of microchips australia and we had a bit of a chat to doug about his his little journey from being a veterinarian in small animal practice with an interest in birds to becoming a a world famous ostrich veterinarian mark Um, and he has so many funny stories about his work with ostriches and we managed to tease a couple of his funny stories out in this interview which you'll hear in a moment and his then other interests and um with with running microchips australia which which sells microchip implants as the name suggests and they're also the distributor for the lone star retractors in australia and he talks on a little bit of a more serious um or a much more serious um note about men's health and his involvement with um um, mental health aspects of um dealing with depression um so it's a i think it was a a fantastic interview and and doug's a a lovely man so we're going to cross over to that interview mark and then we'll come back and, and we'll close this session so let's hear from doug
Mark. Here we are with a very good friend of ours, and that's Doug from Microchips Australia. And Doug, you've got your finger in a lot of pies, apparently, by the look of your stand today, and you have a big history with avian medicine, exotic pet medicine in Australia, um, dealing with ratites, um, and now it looks like you're even dealing with GPS trackers in cars. So we might be here all night. I think we need a few beers um, and, and it's ha- happy hour here um, soon and we're at the Australian Veterinary Association conference again. So this is a, um, episode number three or four I think of um, interviews from the conference. Um, so where do we start Mark? Where do we start? I think we start with the ostriches. What? How the hell did you get involved with large birds that are going to kick you? Uh, because no one else wanted to do it, <laughs> essentially. Um, my esteemed colleague, David Medill, and I were in practice in Springvale many, many moons ago. Which um, is in Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne, Australia. Oh, we're international. Yes, we are. Goodness, oh, I'm overwhelmed. 43 countries around the world. Oh. <laughs> Just off the top of your head. <laughs> um, yeah, so we were in practice and both of us were had a special interest in birds and the ostrich thing came along and um, and they brought some clients would be bringing chicks into us and then asking us whether we would be prepared to go and have a look at their ostriches on farm and David turned to me and said I'm not doing that <laughs> I've done too much dairy medicine you can do it and I said oh, okay I'll have a go at it and um, yeah no one else was prepared to have a go at it so it just Snowball, basically. So, so, what sort of year was this when it started? Uh, that would have been in the late eighties, and it did snowball, didn't it? It went like it went, yeah, it went, went um, gangbusters. Yes, far more than forty-one countries or forty-two. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm bragging, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, no. So I, I ended up travelling all over Australia and. Um, and eventually, you know, working in lots of places all over the world as well it was just fantastic. There was very few, three of us pretty much, doing surgeries in ostriches in those days. Um, two, two vets from Texas um, and me. And um, I sponged quite a lot of information from them, but um, you know, most a lot of the time we were just flying by the seat of our pants, literally. Even though they don't fly, but um, uh, because yeah. because a whole lot of the avian stuff that uh, you and David would have doesn't apply. No, to no, it was I, sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, yeah, no, they they're more like horses than they are birds. So. It was helpful to have the avian side of things behind you because there were particularly a lot of respiratory-related things, but um, and you really needed to know the, the quirks of the the avian respiratory system. But essentially, no, it was like large animal work, you know, and and it was really just you know have a go um, and learn from your mistakes, of which there were many. <laughs> At but their expense. But they're pretty tough. Like you, they, they cope with surgery. And uh, the they fir- do, yes. What was the first surgery you did? So the first surgery I ever did was um, an egg peritonitis um, in a, an ostrich hen that was worth $80,000. And, uh, and Did it uh, die? It didn't die. <laughs> but the point of the exercise was to make it commercially worthwhile and lay eggs again and it never laid an egg because I pretty much guaranteed that it would never lay an egg <laughs> based on what we did in the surgery. Um, no, it was quite an interesting thing and so I actually um, thought, oh man, you know, it's, it's worth so much and this is the first bird that I'd, uh, ostrich that I'd anaesthetised, let alone um, open up and uh, adult hen. And uh, and so we went to the university and I conned a friend of mine, Glenn Edwards, to give me a hand 
I probably shouldn't have mentioned his name. Um, and, um, and, uh, and we had students all around fascinated by this thing, you know, and I was just trying to answer questions and concentrate on what I was doing at the same time because I'd never done it before. <laughs> and, uh, and we opened this thing up and found the... Infundibulum, you know, the, are we talking to avian vets and stuff? Veterinarians and veterinary nurses slash technicians, yeah. Okay, so the infundibulum, and, and you know, you read in textbooks that the infundibulum sits under the ovary and collects the, the well, this thing was a metre, no, well, half a metre away from the ovary, and I said to Glenn, that's got to be it, you know, it needs to be up there. So we tried to tack the infundibulum back into a position that we thought might be anatomically correct and the stuff was like lad wrap and it tore every time you tried to put a stitch in it and, and uh, yeah pretty much at the end of it we stuffed, you know, the, bird. stuffed the bird up but um, <laughs> it, it survived and uh, and then I so the second one I thought I'm not going to do this in front of an audience so I'm doing it by <laughs> myself now and uh, and I did it in a shed in in um, you know on a farm and uh, and opened up and there's an infant I was sitting way down there you know oh man that's happened again <laughs> Because I'm a bit thick, and uh, by the time I got to the third one, I realised oh, that could be normal. Because <laughs> we didn't get to autopsy anything in that sort of egg-laying state. So, um, and then at the end of it, I ended up just essentially never touching the infundibulum and just flushing the hell out of the the abdomen, um, the salomic cavity, and. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and then I ended up getting about um, oh, nearly 60 to 70% back into layer at the end of that. Wow. So, um, yeah, it was, it was quite, you know, interesting to sort of... But you had to, you had to fail before you could succeed. You know. And w- was that a common problem then you yeah, saw yeah, in those common, early yeah, days yeah, or, or, and continuing? Or did yeah, yeah, cause I, and that's where the ultrasound came in really useful. I was chuffed that I'd actually diagnose the condition but then they you know then they turn around and ask you to do the surgery and that first one I go well, who me you know <laughs> so um but um very common because they continually collected the eggs so they were inducing you know ovulation uh, all the time and that was putting pressure on the birds so yeah so I rode that wave for quite a while and went um it was good fun it was great fun they're fantastic birds to deal with um and you got to travel to um South Africa and yeah. South Africa um I uh, had my life threatened in Mexico about another story. Um, um, <laughs> Bangladesh, you know, all those sort of tourist meccas of the world. You know? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, North America, I spoke at the American Ostrich Association a number of times, and that was daunting, you know, speaking to a thousand people at a time, and yeah, they, no one understood what I said, so it was quite, quite, quite okay. Yeah. So, how's the ostrich industry going now? What's the value of the birds and the eggs and the breeding hens and that? Yeah, so they're actually still reasonably valued, Brendan, but there's only one commercial farm left, believe it or not. And I'm not going to talk about that because that is that was a massive, massive um, uh, story that sort of you know requires quite a lot of time and information. But um, essentially, the what happened was the Newcastle disease hit the industry. Um, didn't hit the ostriches, hit the poultry industry, and because an ostrich was being classified as a chook, um, you know that stopped the export market. And then they, we got through that. Australia got reapproved. And then we got hit by another Newcastle disease outbreak. And then the the last straw in the ostriches' back was um, the fact that we um, we had these um, hides that were the marketing arm of the industry 
I was happened to be leading it at the time by default again, just volunteered for it, and um, uh, we we were dependent on this sale of about half a million dollars worth of hides and um, to keep the company going. And uh, and the manager rang me on a Sunday night and said uh, they're not buying any of them. And I said what? You know? He said oh, I've got these things called. Um, uh, pinholes, and I said, "What the heck is that?" You know, and he said, "Oh, they think they're lice." And I said, "Oh, what?" You know, and he said, "Nearly all the hides are affected." So he brought back three of the affected hides, and I had a look at them, and they had um, like a almost like that crown casino emblem. You know, they had little dots, but they were all in you know perfect arrays coming out from the um, the actual plume site and the follicle, and. Um, and so if they were lice, they all had little you know, yes, protractors <laughs> and they're measuring the angles. Um, and they're all the same. And, um, and so it turned out that the, the was due to extra accessory feathers around the... I called them phyla plumes, but they weren't phyla plumes, but um, there were extra feathers in it. And that all came from the 40 or 50 birds that we actually Found captured stock. in northern South Australia um, to start the Australian ostrich industry off again. Isn't that amazing? And then that, all that genetics just went out and and so the whole industry had to start again through importation and all that sort of thing so it was yeah and it didn't survive but and did they have any similar problems overseas with that type of no no it was, no, a, just, it was a just unique Australian. genetic you know issue with that particular flock so yeah. they, they would see that occasionally but it, it, not to the degree that we saw it was just incredibly Isn't that amazing yeah, yeah so that was a really stressful time because I'd actually um volunteered for this role and all the other board members dropped off when things were looking a bit shaky. I was the only one left and, and literally, you know, I was um, really worried about losing my house because, um, you know, if, if it was shown that the company was trading insolvent, then potentially it threatened my livelihood, you know, and here I am just, you know, volunteering for this role because I was so passionate about making the thing work um, and yet we hit all these brick walls. So, good idea at the time. Mm. So tell us about emus. Well, emus are the emus are the the enemy. <laughs> I don't like talking about the enemy. I'll break out in a cold sweat. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, bloody emus. Um, so I'm doing a fair bit still with emus. Um, there's one farm near me that would have 12,000 birds at the end of the breeding season, and um, oh man, there's there's they're a very nice bird if you're just going to go and look at them and pat them or whatever. But you know, if you've got to do something about them, it's it's a rodeo event. You know, it's just because you, you, there is no stop button. You can't put a hood over the head like an ostrich. You know, you've got to physically manhandle them down to the ground and sit on them and then do whatever you have to do. So I don't look forward to that. And I am getting older. So um, yeah, they're the enemy. <laughs> Don't talk about cassowaries, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going there. <laughs> so how did, you, the kiwi. how did you progress from that to, um, and I think I know the answer to this, but you can fill, fill us in, the microchips um, Australia? So, yeah, so that was all happening. So we, we had a bit of an entrepreneurial practice in Springvale. And so um, David actually was on an avian um, conference in one of the first AAV conferences in Hawaii around about the same time that the ostrich thing was breaking and um, 
and uh, he brought back a microchip and we sort of sat around with a few beers and thought this is the answer to the dog and cat issue you know it was he brought it across from the point of view of identifying valuable birds but we thought oh man you know this this could be the answer so that was in the late 80s as well and we so we were the first ones to bring it in and the funny story we sort of so we had this this first microchip it was a different brand to the one that we, we had been with for the last 30 years, but it was this first microchip, and um, and we, we wanted to make it happen, and so we'd, we'd sent all these submissions into various government bodies and that sort of thing. Eventually, we had a phone call from a, um, a government agency, and they said, we want to come in and speak to you about microchips, and we're going, yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> so um, they rolled up, and we're all excited, and these guys sit down, and they say, yeah, so it's about the microchips, and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they said, um, do you realise that the frequency of the microchip that you're using is designated for military and aeronautical use. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> what does that mean? You can't use it. What? <laughs> so we had visions of, you know, poodles bringing down fighter jets or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we ended up going, oh, okay, what do we do? So we ended up then, the company that was making those chips didn't have a chip in a, in a um, legal frequency, so we ended up finding Trovan. And then we've been with Trovin ever since, and thankfully because it's you know really high quality product and that sort of thing. But it created someone else then ran with the older one, the Destron one that we started, and eventually they did bring out one, but it was a slightly different frequency to Trovin. So straight away, then there were two different frequencies, and bloody vets were going, "What are you doing? You know, we need two readers here," and you know, it just really sort of set us back a bit. And in those days. 10 years it took to, to get people to even believe it was going to be a viable method of identification, let alone, you know, we've got issues and confusions in amongst it as well. So it was a, a long, hard road and we ended up buying readers and giving them to councils and then trying to set up networks and build the industry from there. And was the same thing happening at the same time overseas with microchips? And well, to an degree, actually, to be honest, um, Australia, um, th- largely through... The work of Rick and and, uh, and us secondarily, but pr- particularly Rick Waldup, my partner, um, that um, we were really all about organisation and having the the three networks: so the reader, um, the chip, and then the register. Database. You know, and and trying to you know really concentrate on the quality and and the um, accuracy of that. And so um, no one else was doing that. They were just chipping things, you know, and without any kind of forethought. And and so and even to this day, Australia's got the best system of animal identification for companion animals of any country in the world. Um, and so. Uh Microchips Australia has moved into um, other, there's other um, uh, veterinary supplies that um, that you guys have, it's a big hodgepodge of things, it's like you've just... What, a hodgepodge? Yeah, like you, 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 you <laughs> <laughs> That's what oh, I was trying to say. Yeah, it's like you, you go into some big storehouse and pick out the best things that are going to work for... for oh, the fun uh, things. Yeah. Uh, well, the useful things, so the, um, <laughs> uh, the Lone Star Tracker... Um, a very good mutual colleague and friend of ours, Dr. Bob, um, sort of asked me about this. And, and um, so we all had Lone Star retractors in the early days and we knew their worth, but they were bloody hard to buy. Um, and uh, and so um, Bob approached me about sort of doing an Australian veterinary distributorship. So um, we thought, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So that's, yeah, it's really more 
there as a service to people than any, it is, isn't it? anything commercially viable for us. But <laughs> but it's a great thing because it's a great great little product. Um, yeah. It is an excellent product, um, and I I, it, I can vouch for it because it's improved my. Um, uh, surgical skills quite dramatically in providing much greater exposure and I use it obviously with the birds and reptiles but also uh, um, for some of the finer surgeries. I mean the damn, damn things were developed in human surgery for uh, urogenital surgery to um, to do that so it's a, it's not just a bird thing It's um, we use it quite regularly with cats or you know perineal urethrostomies it holds the tissue in a good spot to do the surgery really well so I'm just really sad you don't make heaps of money out of it because it's such a good product. <laughs> and we'll we'll link oh, off. Even sadder. <laughs> we'll link off to that in our show notes um, to the Lone Star Retractor, so um, you can c- click on that. Um, so, what gadget have you got at this conference? Um, we've got we've well last conference we introduced the GPS pet tracker. Petric. Um, so that's a submersible um, 3G GPS pet tracker that runs off a free um, uh, phone app. It's a great product. But we've actually, for the first time, ever launched into a, um, an area that doesn't involve animals, and, uh, and that's a GPS tracker for vehicles and boats and heavy machinery and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's an interesting sort of sideline for us. Um, I heard an interesting story. One of my, um, my wife's friends... Um, uh, uh, I um, got one of uh, maybe even one of yours and because um, she thought her husband was not he was leaving work and going to the pub and, and she whacked it in his car door and, and she could tell which pub he was at and bust him at the pub. Have you got lots of sales like this? <laughs> no but I'll work on that for sure. <laughs> Actually when I first um, found the GPS pet tracker is um, a fella in New Zealand, Eric Lynn, and um, and Eric said was demonstrating some of the tracking stuff that he's got, and he said, "On oh, this is the pet tracker." Um, he said, "Hey, check it out on the phone." And so we were looking at this thing in the phone, and I thought, "Man, that thing's moving!" Because every time it got an update, it was getting thirty second updates. It was going about you know a kilometre. Gee, that's what you got it in a cheater or something, you know? And I said, "What's this in Eric?" He said, "Oh, I put it in my girlfriend's handbag." <laughs> <laughs> mm, that could be dangerous. <laughs> so, yes, this, there's all sorts of different uses for these things that I'm now discovering. <laughs> so, um, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, that I know uh, outside of your uh, um, wonderful veterinary career and your um, entrepreneurial endeavours in uh, para-veterinary equipment, you're also involved in um, men's health, uh, men's mental health. Um, There's a number of things that, and you know, Brendan and I have talked at length in this podcast about uh, um, veterinary uh, mental well-being and the stresses that um, particularly recent graduates, but all uh, uh, veterinarians and their support staff uh, go through. Um, So um, tell us a little bit about the stuff you you've been involved in? Um, well, to a degree, just um, have done a mental health first aid thing, but that's nothing. But um, I'm involved in a, an organisation called Men Alive, and it's uh, up front, it's a faith-based um, organisation, but we, we actually hold weekends where guys get the opportunity to um, pretty much just talk about uh, raw things with other guys, and um, just the way that that 
that weekend is designed. It's, it's just phenomenal how some of these guys open up, sometimes in the first hour, um, and to see the transformation that they go through from the day that they're there initially where they're really I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here, my wife's told me to be here but I don't want to be here to the the culmination in the like a beer here. You bet we And we're just about to be served beverages here but we'll continue with the interview, yes. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you kindly. Enjoy We won't edit that out, yes. so, um, so, just an introduction to the to that weekend. Yeah, well, I think, yeah. um, so, how widespread is that now? Is that is that just Victoria or national? Or? Uh, it's national, and, um, and and as I say, it's it's um, based on um, on uh, the Catholic faith sort of thing. But um, but it has enormous implications as far as you know. It's just it's been such an eye opener for me. I've been doing it for a few years now, and um, and I present and I present part of. One of the presentations that I do is um, is pretty much you know exposing my life and the parts that I probably wouldn't prefer to expose to a whole audience and and it just all that does is it gives them an indication well you know if he's prepared to do that then then so I might be able to do it as well so um, and so it's a, it's a very emotional weekend um, but it's an incredibly healing weekend. Um, for me as well, you know, I've I've done heaps and heaps of those weekends as a presenter in the presenting team, but um, but and it, it can quite often be as healing for me as it is for some of the other guys. And some of the the stories that you hear are just phenomenal. It just makes you realise that um, there's there's actually very few people out there that are normal, you know, that are, that are living you know lives where um, you know that some form of stress or drama or crisis or or whatever has, has you know been playing a part in their in their life. So um, yeah, it's just yeah, it's, it's a really positive thing. I think it's a really positive thing because um, you know we're, we're a profession that um, uh, um, um, gender plays an important role, and we we understand the stresses that all the people that are in our profession go through. But I think that there is this whole concept of toxic masculinity and how the failure to um, be able to communicate the things that we're concerned about, uh, whether it to be other men or our family members or whatever, that um, plug that blocks us all up and and drives us to be angry and feel that we're failing, feel that we're not... um, living that perfect life that we see everyone you know you look on Facebook and they're going on holidays and they don't seem to have any money worries and what's going on with my life if you don't make those connections particularly with other men um, they can be expressed in really negative ways and, and that can be destructive both internally for men but also for the, the women and families around those men so I think it's a really really important thing and there's some some significant innate differences between men and women um, emotionally so that um, you know as guys we exactly use the same mate. we sort of we almost feel that we're obligated to lead and to be strong and to you know uh, not show any chinks in the armour sort of thing and then also um, apparently someone's done research that suggests that um women um, speak about I forget what it is now but you know, 70 times more words than, than a man does because uh, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's almost um, common for them to just 
talk and, and, and talk about deeper things. Whereas, you know, if the three of us get around a table, it takes a long time for us to get to the nitty gritty. You know, we'll talk about the footy or, you know, all these sorts of, you know, um, macho type topics but you know talk about my vulnerability and how I really feel you know um, well that's going to take a fair bit to before I'm going to get around to that sort of thing so I think it's one of the things that um, I've wanted like here at the AVA conference one of the things I'm constantly reminded I'm here with Brendan and you and um, and I'm just I feel surrounded by um, supportive people that I you know I've gone through those trust things and now I do feel like I've got a network of people around me that will help me through the things that I worry about um, and so I think cultivating that in that that's a real strength that scaffolding around people's lives to cultivate that I think is a really powerful thing absolutely and um, uh, so with some of the guys that I share that weekend um, leadership with um, uh, I've not known them for very long but they're like you know you guys so you know I would um, I'd be quite happy to to share deeply with those guys Um, but there are some guys that I've got that I would call some of my best friends who I've never gone to that level with, you know, and yet I've known them for 40 years. Um, and an example of that was um, last uh, two weeks ago, I was in Adelaide doing the Adelaide Animal Expo, and um, and one of my best friends rang me and um, was quite slow about it, you know. So normally, you know, we go through all the banter and that sort of thing, and he didn't say anything. But to cut the short, the story short. He got around to telling me that his wife, who is also one of my best friends and bailed me out of a major life crisis when I was younger, had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And um, and at that point, you know, Wayne could hardly speak. And, and uh, yeah, man, I was just blown away. And, um, um, you know, I could hardly speak as well. So, but... I guess probably the main thing was that we'd never, you know, in all of the, the time that I've known him, we'd never actually gone to that level. And then for that to happen in such a crisis event was such a real struggle to get through. So I was walking around the Adelaide Animal Expo area, you know, I'm trying to, you know, sort of <laughs> maintain some form of um, control. But, oh, geez, that was a difficult call, you know. So, But it, that just highlights the fact that we often don't go to that level with some of our best friends. And I think um, going there regularly on a, you know, at a time maybe when you just have uh, um, a less intense event, a bad thought, or where you just reveal yourself facilitates that, you know, I think that if you're ready to do that immediately, you have a bad thing, then it puts you in a better position than going, oh, who do I tell? Walk it up, I can't, you know. Um, So I think um, uh, weekends like that just... Um, making sure that we ask each other we're okay. Um, I think they're really, really important things. And I think while we're focusing on the men's aspect here, um, I think that um, that the, the same things apply. Oh, if absolutely. we can um, talk to our partners and uh, um, be honest with them and upfront, then that's going to help us and uh, add another level of support and scaffolding to our lives. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. You, could, you know, when someone sort of says, "Hey, how you going, mate?" You know, "Oh, great. Yeah, good." You know, no, no, how are you going? You know, it could take five questions before you actually get to that point. Well, actually, I'm not going that well. You know? yeah. um, and if you don't share it, you just steward it. And uh, there's, there would be, I cannot begin to tell you the number of times that I have shared it. And the, even just the perspective or the experience of the person I'm talking to completely changes my attitude. 
um, and I end up like thinking, oh, that um, one-dimensional thing I was like um, focused on, you know, putting that in perspective now with the value of Doug or Brendan or whoever I'm speaking to, um, I'll cope with that a bit better. Puts it all into a, a whole different light. So yeah. what you thought was, you know, unchangeable or you know, um, unsurmountable, you know, insurmountable. We, we do proper grammar here, don't we? <laughs> Insurmountable. <clears throat> you, um, you obviously haven't listened to a podcast. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, yeah, so, yeah, all of a sudden you think, oh, hang on, maybe there, you know, and then other people have gone through that. So I'm not well, the only one, you know. That, um, even just in sort of practice management, owning a, a business, I find that um, uh, being able to, and it's, it's, it can be emotional, but it's often not as important as you feel it is. But there's very few things where you've got to reinvent the wheel. Like, there's almost all experiences in business someone else has gone through and figured out um, and dealt with and coped with. And so just talking about it to people, I think, makes a world of difference. Can I go way back to the ostrich thing and yes, highlight yes. something? So the... Um, we like this full circle. Yeah. All right, well, we're going right back to the start. Oh, good. <laughs> Shut up, in other words. <laughs> um, no, uh, turn that all around, the power of communication. So um, there was also a condition that I discovered in ostriches, in this, particularly Australian ostriches, that before they actually ever laid an egg, they would produce like um, uh, almost like an, an albumin discharge from the overduct and almost as a pre-emptive thing to egg laying and um and some some of the times there there would be a membrane across almost like um um, a full membrane across the entrance to the overduct um and so this fluid would actually trap into that and eventually form a, a sac that eventually was prolapsed and um and so in my great wisdom, um, I would actually um, get those cases and then um, push them back up the overduct. Um, so I didn't understand what was going on for a start, let me preface it that way. Um, I'd push it back up thinking it was just a prolapse yeah. of overductal material, push it up there and then put a purse string suture in these things. And um, and eventually they, they often would come right over time, but sometimes you'd take the purse string suture and the whole thing would be recurring. And one guy, one mate of mine who hadn't ever seen the thing before, and I'd been, I would have done 20 of these cases all treated the same way because no one had written anything about it. And this, this fella, um, Roggers, said to me, um, oh, so if there's fluid behind there, why don't you just well, drain it? Uh, and I said, uh, oh... Yeah, maybe. Why not? Yeah. So, so I got a scalpel and just stabbed into this thing, and now comes all this albuminous material, and the whole thing just shrunk and went back. And and so, ever since then, that's the way I treated it. So, you know, if someone brought a bird to me like that, or I'd go and see a bird like that, I'd just grab a scalpel and go stab, boom, out it comes, and the whole thing took about ten seconds, and it was taking me nearly an hour to do this other thing. It's just, and that's just people opening up and communicating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there you go, full circle, full circle, and it's been the power of the ostrich. The power of the ostrich. <laughs> That'll be the title for this podcast. We always have a title, and it's been fantastic talking to you, Doug. And um, we better get stuck into these um, beers. Very good. I think we'll have to get Doug back on again another time with the podcast, Mark, because he has some amazing stories, doesn't he?
I think he has. He is. He does. I've got no doubt in the world he hasn't told us all the good stories he's got yet. Um, and I just, uh, he has a, um, he's one of those people that you do just um, feel comfortable in his company. Um, and, uh, and the stories he tells, they uh, often reflect um, his deeper interest in what's going on in people. And so, yeah, I look forward to having a talk to him again. I do want to, um, uh, you know, we talked about the Lone Star Attractor before and, um, and I know Doug, uh, um, makes a considerable effort through Microchips Australia to contribute um, by providing um, items like that, uh, making them available for Australian avian and unusual uh, pet vets. Um, so, you know, I, I pat him on the back for that commitment to our industry. Yes, and we'll give Doug a little plug in the show notes. We'll have a link to Microchips Australia, which will have the link to the Lone Star Retractor. So, um, yeah, it was great catching up with Doug, um, and I think we did that interview in the middle of the trade hall. So, But I think the little recorder did quite well, um, Mark, in, in, in cutting out some of the background noise there. So, And we have another couple of interviews to to go with in the future. But I think the outro guy's here. So thanks for listening, and we will talk to you all next week. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time